This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with me, Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, I had a, a, really, I had a really good weekend, man. Saturday, went to Orlando for the launch of our uh, Orlando chapter. So so that puts us, I think, at 15 chapters for the Ann campaign around the country. Shout out to Orlando and that that team of leaders. Very hospitable, you know, in great spirits and it really had some great people at that launch event. So I want to give a shout out to them. And then I got a chance to preach at Redeemer in Atlanta, at Redeemer Community Church here in Atlanta. So shout out to them as well. It was crazy because I got back from Orlando. My flight, I guess it was storming in, in Atlanta. So my flight was delayed, got back late but was able to make it to church in the morning and things went well. I preached a message on Acts 29 through 39, and it was called Deliver the Message, Receive the Message. What did you preach on Sunday, my my brother? I preached on Sunday in Galatians chapter 5, I believe like around verse 16, but it was a sermon called Don't Let Your Flesh Funk Up Your Freedom. Whoa, okay. Uh, so we play on words, I see. <laughs> <laughs> We've been in a series on freedom in Galatians. So, yes, that was the sermon on Sunday. Okay, I'm going to have to look that one up. Where, where can we get? Can we see those like on Facebook or, or y'all recording? Yeah, if you go to Chicago Embassy Church Network Facebook or YouTube, the sermons are on there. I think they're on our website, cdcnetwork.church. I'm pretty sure the latest sermon's on the website, too. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out, my brother. Y'all know what it is, though. You know, you know, If you have not gotten over to our website to watch our How I Got Over docuseries about the role that the authority of Scripture played in the traditional black church, you need to check that out. I mean, it's a, a very well-done documentary that talks about the authority of Scripture orthodoxy in the black church from the standpoint of art social action, the establishment of the church, education. The education one is one of my favorite. You got cats like Vince Bantu, Esau McCauley. I mean, all them brothers are really speaking into that piece. So go check it out, man. You don't want to miss it. We're about to release the last two episodes soon. So so be ready for that. You also got our whole Life Project video that came out, uh, I guess, about a month ago or so, um, where we're really trying to change or correct the narrative when it comes to abortion. We want people to think about it past the talking points to really get to where God calls us to be on that particular issue. All right. As always, I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics 
And if you do that, if you give monthly, you'll also get premium episodes where we talk about issues that we don't get to on the show, uh, you know, on the regular show. So uh, if you want to check that out, if you like what we do, support us and become part of the movement. But you know what it is right now. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And Chris, if you don't mind, I want to start off in Psalm 15 at verse 2. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord as he is their help and shield. Idolatry, Chris, is the worship of something other than God. Political idolatry, the the definition that I put together for, for this show, is lifting up a politician, a party, a policy, or any other political object beyond its proper status as a broken, insufficient thing made by human hands. This includes suggesting that any of these things will save us if we just revere them properly and follow them fully. And if I'm going to make an admission, I would say that I found myself in looking back political idolatry. I I think there was some political ideology on my part when it came to President Obama. Okay. And I'm just going to be honest about that. And I had to look back and make certain corrections. Not that I don't appreciate him now, but at the time, I think maybe I had taken it too far. Chris, I think I found a really bad example, good in a way that it's accurate, but bad in a way that it's not a good thing of political idolatry. And so what I want everybody to do real quick is just listen to this video and then me and Chris will will talk about it a little bit. Our Constitution, our Constitution, if you read our Constitution, and you should, in fact, you should put the Bible aside and read the Constitution during some of your sermons. Just read pieces of it. Why? Why? Because if you study our you study our Constitution, I mean study it. You study the Federalist Papers. You study the, the, the writings of our founders. Writings as, as deep as, as reading the letters from our founding fathers to their wives or to their, to their children. They're fascinating. And the, the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, are based primarily on the Bible. They are. I mean, they are. There's no doubt about it. Okay? That was former U.S. National Security Advisor Michael Flynn speaking at what appears to be a white evangelical church. I don't know where. And Chris, basically, my man gave a sermon complete with homiletics hermeneutics, and a path to salvation. He told us to uphold the authority of the text and to study to show ourselves approved. Unfortunately, Chris, that text wasn't the Bible. 
You know, he said something like the founders rose early one Sunday morning to write the U.S. Constitution and overcome death and the sin of the world. That's basically the message, the implication that I got from that message. But he literally said, put the Bible aside and preach from the Constitution sometimes. And basically said that the Constitution is a faithful exposition of the gospel as applied to the sociopolitical space. Now, there's a little bit of commentary in there, but you get the point. That was out of line. Now, Chris, I believe the Constitution is a flawed yet brilliant document. We know it's flawed because it allowed slavery and other evils, and it's been amended multiple times, right? So we know it is indeed flawed. But I do take a kind of Frederick Douglass position when it comes to the Constitution. I think it provides an ingenious framework of rights, checks and balances that allow us to get closer to a good, not perfect, a good ideal. What Michael Flynn said was political idolatry and Christian nationalism, maybe in its kind of rawest form. He lifted the U.S. Constitution to a place of worship and reverence that's far beyond what it deserves. And the question that I have to ask in listening to that and watching that video is, who was presiding over that service? Somebody in that church should have ran up immediately and ripped that microphone out of his hands. In fact, the entire congregation should have started tearing their clothes. Now, y'all know in the Bible, people tore their clothes in anger or in sadness. And in 2 Kings 22, King Josiah tore his robe when he heard about the law and then realized that Israel was ignoring the law. When something that, like that happens, we should be, there should be a level of sadness or even a level of anger at the way things have been distorted and some things lifted up in a place where they shouldn't be. Chris, what were your thoughts when you were watching that video? Yeah, I mean, I think it is an unacceptable practice, I think, to suggest that preachers should at any interval put aside the text of scripture in favor for the text of another document. I think that there is a kind of a desire in the hearts of some people to completely write out the underlying sort of Christian principles that were prevailing and and probably shaped a lot of the thought that goes into the development of the Constitution. And, you know, I I look at, you know, this uh, quote that is from a letter from John Adams, right, who is sort of the architect of the United States governmental system that's articulated in the Constitution. And he does say that the general principles upon which the Constitution is written are the general principles of, of Christianity. But then he says, I will avow that I believe then and believe now that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, right? So nowhere does Adams, who has a lot of faith in this constitution, suggest that the constitution is immutable or that the constitution is eternal. And I think that it's a big mistake, even if you think about texts that I believe are more closely derived from the scripture, great devotional texts and lots and lots of Christian writings. I wouldn't even suggest to preachers that they put aside the Bible 
in favor of those texts, which I think are much more closely derived from the scriptures than is the United States Constitution. I think you just have to hold these things in, in right view. There is a way to hold up and appreciate the idea that Christianity and the, the kind of basic principles and philosophies of Christianity influenced the shaping of the Constitution without saying that the Constitution itself is the immutable word of God that we should be studying, devoting ourselves to and preaching. Yeah. And I hope somebody pulled him aside. I hope he, I mean, hopefully he has a pastor and said, Hey man, you, you went too far. I, I see what you were trying to do kind of, <laughs> but you went way too far and your theology is, is, is off. Like why would you to tell pastors to put the Bible aside at that point, as soon as aside came out, even before he said constitution, somebody should have ran up there again. Whoever was presiding was not on their job. Somebody should have ran up there and like dove and and took take taking that mic out of his hand. Yeah, whatever comes okay. after the phrase, sometimes preachers should put the Bible aside. You know, right. Like whatever comes after that. It doesn't even matter what comes after that, right? It's already going in the wrong direction. And I think you point out a you make a good point. There is a Christian influence in the Constitution. The idea of inalienable rights comes from the idea of human dignity, right? That your rights come from God. The government and the founders are not actually the ones that gave you your rights. Rights come from God. Therefore, man cannot take those away, right? From a humanistic point of view, that's very hard to explain why you would have anything would be inalienable. From a postmodern point of view, it's very hard to explain why if somebody doesn't think I have rights, then I don't have rights. Right. Like it, it, that inalienable rights and coming from something bigger than us is hard to explain through a philosophy that doesn't see anything bigger than us. That thinks we get to make the decisions about what's true and what has value. I don't know. I mean, I've heard people try to make the argument from a humanistic or postmodern perspective about rights. But it just doesn't hold the same way, because at the end of the day, if rights come from us or what we th- or just what we think is right, then they can be taken away once we change our mind or once a certain group changes his mind or once we think a certain group is bad enough to where we can change our mind, then that changes. And so that idea does come from a Christian ethic. However, just like you said, to, to say that that means that the Constitution is purely Christian or close to purely Christian is absolutely wrong. And we can tell by some of the flaws that have been in the Constitution, some of the flaws that may still be uh, in the Constitution. And then we also need to understand and be honest about the fact that many of the founders were deists, right? Not Christians, but deists. And what basically what deists say is that there is a God, there is a grand design. Like, To me, it's much smarter than atheism because it says I can't look at this world and act like there wasn't a design, that this all just came out of nowhere is ridiculous. But what Adias would say is that God doesn't still interact with the world. God set the world almost like a clock and just let it and just backed away and kind of lets it, you know, you do your own thing. So they would say they would believe more in the logic that God instilled in us than any type of faith. And they say that Christianity and atheism are both a leap of faith that they're not willing to take. Um, And so when you understand that many of the founders were deists, you kind of have to back away from the idea that this is a Christian document 
a quote unquote Christian company. No, it has those influences. But having that influence, there's a lot of people that are influenced <laughs> by the church, influenced by the religion that aren't really saved and, you know, a, a part of the church. So just something to keep in mind. Any, anything else, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good thing to point out, like the, the deistic kind of approach. And I think that it's closer to deism to actually hold up the Constitution in this sort of way that this should be something that we should study and preach in church and kind of hold up as a moral directive when we have the God-breathed scriptures. It's literally to say that God put something in the earth, but then men start developing other texts and other documents, and now those documents are, are authoritative. In order to believe that, you would have to believe that God gave that authority over to man at some point, which he never did. I don't think that would be a Christian position to say that God has surrendered that authoritative position and sovereignty over to mankind so that now the documents that we write instead uh, are going to be authoritative. Uh, the only way you could argue that the that the document itself is authoritative in a way that a preacher should proclaim it and to suggest that it is as edifying as proclaiming the word of God is to suggest that that text is as inspired as is the text of scripture, which is a position that would be completely indefensible in any kind of like even close to orthodox Christian community. And I, I will say that the most unfortunate part about the video is that this kind of thought is put out there way more often than it is responded to with the kind of veracity that I think it deserves. And sometimes that kind of silence from certain communities seems to me to be sort of acquiescence. Yeah. And he got he got some amens and hallelujahs, too, man. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it wasn't like he said it and it was a dead silence or, you know, people were like, all right, bro. <laughs> but it, it was more of an amen. Take your time. Hallelujah. You know, keep going. Which is why like so, you and said. I, and the obviously, somebody recorded it. So I'm not saying everybody in that church agreed with him, but. He, he wasn't alone. What were you about to say, Chris? No, I was going to say, what, what you said is important. The person presiding, you know, because unfortunately, like I've had to do that in, in my congregational context. It, you have to do it because when you, those amens and hallelujahs are coming from the congregation. But when you give somebody the platform, you're sort of co-signing what they're going to say. And so if I've given somebody the platform and then they say something that's completely out of order and out of alignment with what we teach and believe, it's my responsibility to step forward and make very certain and clear to the congregation that, okay, what what was just said is not in keeping with what we teach and what we believe. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it is, it is, it's almost, I don't want to say it's right because you still have some responsibility of your own mind and your own faith, but it's expected that people would give weight to what somebody says in a congregational context when that leadership has given that platform to that individual. Yeah. And, and, and presiding is, is almost like an, an art and a science. It's like, yeah. okay, some people do it very diplomatically. Like brother, let me put my hand on your shoulder, brother. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> give, give me that <laughs> microphone. Uh, we, we, we all have been in church services where somebody starts prophesying or something else and it just ain't right. Pastor Winans was somebody just was prophesying and I guess they were, you know, doing so falsely. Yeah. And he had to say, hey, man, pick her up off the ground, 
get her out of here. This is not what we're doing today. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not, you know, this is ain't, ain't came from nowhere but you. This yeah. ain't came from God. You know, and that's really a presider is supposed to do things. It's not pleasant. But if this is a sacred space, then we need to make sure that people are treating it as such. And for to let somebody go on a rant about how the you know put the Bible aside and and bring in and read the Constitution from the sacred desk. Mm-hmm. So I'll leave you guys with this: if you're ever in a church and someone turn tells you to turn to Article Three, Section Two of the Constitution, like it's the Bible, I want you to get up, get your family, and walk out the doors. Yeah. Right. We're not we're not going to be reading the Constitution from the pulpit in that manner. It's unfortunate that uh, Michael Flynn didn't know better and, and seemed to be encouraged to to continue on with that line of thought. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's just important. And again, I don't know all of what happened in the context of that particular service. Right. I do that's think true. that I can speak to the fact that, in my opinion, like I wish that there were more people who come out of that sort of community because it's one thing for me to say it but for the leaders who hold position in these congregations where this kind of thinking is there i would love to see much more clear and public repudiation of that whole strand of teaching just to make clear that that's not christian that's not biblical and it doesn't mean that you hate america if you don't embrace it that's a word we will be right back on church politics podcast Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, I know this isn't on uh, the agenda for today, but I have to ask you, is it hot in Chicago like it is in Atlanta? I'm pretty sure it's it's not hot in Chicago like it is in Atlanta. It's kind of nice. It's been nice in Chicago. I mean, upper 70s, lower 80s. Y'all had a long winter, so I guess it's good that y'all get a break because it can get hot in Chicago. I mean, I know that it can. It can. We have not been running up against those like 120 degree heat index days, though. Yeah, we've had a couple of those this week. In fact, we had to cancel practice one day because it was just it was just too hot. There was there was no way, no way to make it work. So people are literally melting in Atlanta right now. So uh, keep us in your in your thoughts and prayers. Those six weeks out of the year when the weather is better in Chicago than it is in Atlanta. 
there you go there you go so ho- hopefully we're coming out of it soon as the fall comes in 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 the season this next conversation should be an interesting one too chris according to the hill president biden is facing mounting criticism over his response to the catastrophic wildfires in maui with former president trump and other critics keeping the airways full of attacks over how he has handled the situation The president ran as an empathetic politician who shines in times of crisis, but his reaction to Maui has left political watchers wondering where that Biden has gone. Uh, Apparently, on Saturday, when he was first asked about the mounting death toll, he just said no comment. I think people were upset that he wouldn't have anything to say about something that's such a big deal. So he's been getting a lot of criticism. On Tuesday, I think he did announce, according to Newsweek, he announced that they would be giving offering victims $700 per household in emergency aid. And a lot of people have called that $700 insulting, right? Like, because he kind of went up there and, and kind of announced it like it was this big thing. And everybody's like, $700? Now, again, according to Newsweek, political opponents and commentators described the sum as insulting and compared it with the more than $113 billion worth of aid the U.S. has sent to Ukraine as it defends itself against ongoing Russian invasion. On Monday, the government announced it was sending another $200 million in defense capabilities. Now, Chris, this is the deadliest wildfire in modern American history. 106 bodies have been found or have been recovered, and 1,300 remain missing. Some are comparing this to Hurricane Katrina. Some of them are comparing it to Trump's Puerto Rico response. Uh, and they're saying, you know, with all the stuff that's going on and, and how poor this response was, to, to announce $700 to each family like it's some big deal really was tone deaf. And uh, Biden has to do better. The question it brings up to me, too, if he just because that's not like to say no comment doesn't seem like him. But again, you get you run into the issue where he might just be tired and and out of gas and really not have the energy to respond in the way that he needs to as far as his communications go. Any thoughts, Chris? It is uh, surprising, if not from just like a management standpoint, from a political standpoint, that the whole administration seemed to be caught so on its back foot with this whole thing. You know, as somebody who was leaning into kind of like being a professional in the area of like politics and government and stuff during the time of Katrina, it does feel eerily similar, right? Where you have uh, this major catastrophe and much more even than than back in those days, just because the technology is different. But you were getting reports and probably back then just knowing more people were actually impacted. But you're getting reports of folks on the ground suggesting that they're not getting the kind of resources that they need in the immediate aftermath for recovery, uh, this kind of slowness to mobilize the National Guard and other military resources there, the slowness to allocate significant funding, the slowness of a sort of presidential response uh, with the president just really articulating the heart of concern for the community. And then this this overriding idea that that all of that might be sort of generating from a sort of a disconnect between the president himself and the people who have been impacted. And so hmm. all of that seems really familiar. 
And this this is one of those things that, you know, you, you just have to watch it unfold. But it was, you know, with Katrina, it was like, you know, late August when the hurricane made landfall in Louisiana. And it was it was like September, you know, a few days into September, not even the middle of September, by the time the FEMA our director had to res- resign. Yeah. And so these things can have a tremendous amount of political impact, uh, not to mention the real life impact that it's having on people and families, you know, folks. I think back to that Katrina moment, you know, where, where you literally, uh, at that time, like, you know people, I don't know anybody right now who lives in Hawaii. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit different for me personally. But the idea that there are folks who literally don't know where their family members are, don't know if they're dead or alive, can't get to them to try to help them in any kind of way. And then there's the sense that the people who can and kind of have the responsibility to do so don't feel like they're doing everything that they can. It's it's just a horrible kind of a a situation. Yeah, the reality is bad. And now the optics and how it's being handled are bad. I think I was watching Rising yesterday and they were talking about how what really got President Bush, because he was actually pretty popular up into Katrina, was the picture that they took of him looking outside of Air Force One at the issues or out of a helicopter or something. He was looking down at it, but he didn't go down there. He was looking down at it with like a sad face and like, you're not going to go down there. And people really didn't react well to that. Mm-hmm. I think rightfully people th- feel that the leader of the nation needs to drop everything when something like this happens and address it with strength and compassion. Yeah. A no comment. And it just doesn't seem like Biden anyway. Right. Like a no comment response when there's this much. No one said that you have to give the, the whole plan. Like I don't think people yeah. expected to have the whole plan drawn out immediately on exactly what they needed to do. But you have speech writers. You, you know what I'm saying? Like you can find a way to address it and let people know you're taking it seriously, that, you know, that there are efforts that are pointed that way and that you're with the people who are there and the country as a whole. Is with them. Yeah. For that not to happen with, again, a politician who usually that's his calling. That's that's his thing right there. Right. Like that's how he connects the people is they feel like, you know, he's down to earth and that he cares. Yeah. And why that didn't happen. Look, people have bad days, whatever. But this don't happen every day. You don't get a wildfire like this every day. You don't get this much suffering every day. Thirteen hundred people. I think there's I want to say twelve thousand people in like this area. Thirteen hundred of them are missing. And they don't know where they at. That's not good. I mean, it's been a couple of days. That's not a good thing. So certainly we want to say prayers out to all the families and the community affected by these wildfires. I hope they get to the bottom of it. And I hope I'm confident, you know, I, you know, I, I, I go hard at the government every now and then when they're missing. I, I'm confident and I'm hoping that this will be hand, it'll be more than just the seven hundred dollars. Right. That that this community, however it's done will get what it's, it needs to get back on their feet once all this stuff is figured out. Chris, you can take us out. Yeah, I, I certainly echo those prayers. And I hope that that the president and the administration will go to Congress and ask for special allocation to get more resources for these families. But, you know, I, I do think that Biden's no comment moment could rise to the level of the Bush flyover, just because when you put it in the whole context, he's coming off a vacation. And if you haven't watched the video, I would urge you to go look at it because it's he's in transition. It's not like a prepared statement, which is, you know, that's one problem. They should have had a prepared opportunity to speak about this. Uh, But he's in transition. He's coming off vacation uh, and he's almost kind of like smirking when he says the no comment. It was it was really 
weird. And that video is not great. So, you know, we'll see how it unfolds. But when I when I look at that video, I'm like, that's not great. That is not great. Yeah. And not that it's a good thing, but maybe the fact that it's not in the continental United States, you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that could help him Mm -hmm. for better or worse. It could, but I don't know. We'll we'll have to see how long this is a story. And if, you know, if how much, you know, mainstream media is actually going to report on it and, and let us know how bad it really was. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me to hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, had some words for for President Trump. As you know, they haven't, they're not the best of friends. President Trump did run a candidate against the governor in his last election, which the governor slayed handily. And so I I feel like the governor feels like he's got the independence and the security to say to Trump whatever he wants to say to him. And he's been doing that quite a bit. So Trump gets on after he's been indicted, and we'll get into that indictment in a second, but after he's been in- indicted in Georgia, in Fulton County, Trump gets on True Social or whatever he uses and basically talks about how the election was stolen from him in Georgia due to voter fraud. Governor Kemp just wasn't having it. And so this is what Governor Kemp said. He said the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen. For nearly three years now, anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in the court of law. Our elections in Georgia are secure, accessible, and fair, and will continue to be as long as I am governor. The future of our country is at stake in 2024, and that must be our focus. Okay. Now, I also mentioned that, you know, uh, before this happened, there were uh, Democrats who were saying that when he beat Stacey Abrams the first time, that that was also stolen or, you know, there, there was foul play at hand. I think it's only fair to mention that all of those lawsuits and all the stuff that goes along with that have been dismissed as well. So nobody's come up with evidence that a court has accepted to show on either side that there has been any funny business going on with Georgia's elections. Now, I have talked about some of the election laws that were proposed in Georgia and uh, how I didn't feel like they were needed. We even had the lieutenant governor of Georgia on the show basically saying that some of these laws were solutions looking for, you know, looking for a problem. Just a little bit of background on that. There has been nothing substantiated on either side should have folks question Georgia's election. Maybe something pops up. I don't know. 
But as of right now, the courts haven't found anything. Now, again, this back and forth, Chris, happened after Trump was indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, by D.A. Fonnie Willis. And I want to tell all the folks in national uh, media, it's not Fannie Willis, <laughs> it's Fonnie Willis. And I am a fan. I, I'm a fan of what she does. I think she's fair and I think she's doing her job. And I think she's doing her job well, from what I can tell. But just to give you a little understanding of the actual indictment, and this comes from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it says this. Former President Donald Trump orchestrated, this is what the indictment is saying. Former President Donald Trump orchestrated a sweeping criminal enterprise, committing more than a dozen felonies as he tried and failed to overturn his defeat in Georgia's 2020 election, according to an indictment handed up Monday by Fulton Court grand jury. The indictment also charged 18 of Trump's allies. So this is a RICO charge. It charged 18 of his allies with taking part in this conspiracy, including former New York mayor Rudy Giuliani and then former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows and former state Republican Party chairman David Schaefer. So by pulling in 18 others, I'm guessing the hope of the DA's office is that some people are these folks are going to turn on Trump and actually give them more, you know, give them more information. You have you have the phone conversation right with him and the secretary of state bad. Who knows what a jury makes of that? But it's, it's certainly not good. It sounds like the DA's office is trying to say, hey, let's get some folks to corroborate that and give us some more details by drawing all these other folks in because don't nobody want to have to go to jail for this stuff. And and you may find some folks who who flip on the former president. Any thoughts on Kemp's comments towards, and let me remind you this too, in Georgia right now. So Georgia is going to be very important for Trump in 2024, right? If he would have won here, he would have won the last election, right? Again, he has a governor, a Republican governor that really don't rock with him too tough. Now that Republican governor is at 60 plus percent favorability in the state. How much that, you know, plays into a presidential election, I don't know, but it's certainly part of the dynamic that we should be watching as 2024 comes up. But go ahead, Chris, what, what are your thoughts on Kemp's comments and also this indictment? One, you just have to have a tremendous amount of respect for Governor Kemp. And I think it comes from the fact that he's an individual who had to face similar rhetoric coming into elected office where folks are you know, saying that, well, the only reason he's in elected office is because the election was rigged or the election was stolen, which, like you said, has never been proven in any court. And that's not for lack of trying. Um, it's just never actually been uh, proven. And so to be able to maintain that approach and, you know, integrity and say that, hey, this election didn't even have the outcome that I wanted. Right. It was it was the opposite of the outcome that I wanted to have. But that's not because the election was rigged. Uh, so a tremendous amount of respect for him for that. Donald Trump is saying, even in that truth, that Monday he's going to present this new report and new evidence. I, I guess I wouldn't hold my breath for that. But that's I mean, to me, like that's the purpose of the courts. I, I don't think Donald Trump go, taking every effort to go to court and sue in all the states like they did. That's what the courts are for. But the reality is none of this stuff was ever upheld in court. For me personally, as somebody who has been involved in a lot of elections in really technical ways, 
the the allegation that the election was stolen to me it seems farcical but at at, at very least it's a it's a heck of a claim uh, because people who listen to the church politics podcast should know that our electoral system is not perfect and there's a lot that I would change about it but the kind of irregularities and barriers that I think we need to hammer out in order to make uh, voting more accessible, uh, to make our elections more democratic and all those types of things. All that stuff notwithstanding, to steal an election, especially a presidential election, the level of coordination and, um, you know, sort of interstate coordination all the way down to like super granular county levels. In order to do that, it would just take such a remarkable, I mean, and even in Chicago, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, so hard to do. Like it, it would be hard to steal an automatic election in Chicago. Right. Right. Now, back in the day, it has happened. Right. Like, and I say all this stuff is joke. You know, I gotta, I gotta rib him for being from Chicago and not from Atlanta, but we know that the JFK, right. We know that mm-hmm. him and Lyndon Baines Johnson, when it came to Texas and when it came to Illinois, there was some shady stuff going on with that election. That's not yeah. as easy to pull off. Not that it was easy then, but that's not that third thing would not be easy to pull off now. Yeah. And it, it but it, it takes that level of coordination. You yeah. certainly don't just wake up on election day and and steal a presidential election. Right. In this day and age, if somebody did it, the level of sort of like financial and legal resources that have gone to gone into proving this something approaching a real obvious and evident conspiracy would have come forth by that. Now, Chris, according to what I've seen, and I could be wrong, most Republicans still believe that it was stolen, though. That is true. Most. This is after Republican-appointed judges, right, rejected it. This is after a Republican governor said that it's not true. People still believe it. And I, and I really think, Chris, that part of what's wrong with our politics is we don't let the facts get in the way of what we believe. And I, I think there's issues on both sides that no matter what the facts say, we just won't believe it. Yep. No matter what the facts say, if it if it goes against our narrative, it can't be true. And we can't operate when you have that type of crisis when it comes to what the truth is and what the facts are. It's hard to have a it's hard to have a healthy democracy. Yeah. It's hard to have a healthy democracy if your narrative is more important than the facts. And Christians, I'm gonna tell you something. What our conversations about crime, about quote unquote black on black crime on this Trump stuff, on these elections, what we're trying to show you is no matter what the narrative is and no matter what culture or group it serves, Christians cannot be more attached to the narrative than the truth. And there are examples in every culture and every party and every ideological tribe of where we are more attached to the narrative that flatters us more than the facts. And what the church politics podcast and the and campaign is trying to do and trying to model is that that can't be the case. That's not faith. That's not being a faithful Christian. So when y'all get mad at us because we say, no, 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 there's a cultural issue in some of these in some of our communities that needs to be addressed and we can't just blame on everybody else. That's not us trying to 
play into a conservative narrative. That's us trying to be honest. When we say, hey, Republicans, y'all can't maintain that the, all these elections were stolen when every all the evidence points the other way. That's not us trying to play into a progressive narrative. That's us trying to be honest, because to me, we have to have more of a stake in honesty. Like, you know, what I'm saying we have to feel like being honest about it benefits us more than playing into narratives. And, and we're just not there right now. Yeah. The other piece that I try to remind, uh, especially my Republican friends, is that facts are not the only thing that sit opposite of the narratives that we refuse to let go. Actual experiential change, like the concrete changes in people's lives and in our communities uh, that we want to see, sit on the other side of these narratives. Because if you're a person who thinks that it will be bad if Joe Biden is reelected president, uh, and you think it will be good for the United States if, if Donald Trump is reelected president. This whole election conspiracy thing is not the most direct route to get Donald Trump reelected. The reason Donald Trump lost the election is not because it was stolen. It's because there are some basic tactical things on the ground, a few policy things, I think, too, towards the end of the election. But if you just have a better early voting game and a better turnout strategy, Donald Trump wins the election. And so spending four years claiming that the election was stolen doesn't get you closer to winning the next election. What gets you closer to winning the next election is actually focusing on your turnout strategy and making sure that you get more early votes. And getting to the mail-in ballots and all that stuff that the Democrats were doing in Georgia and the Republicans weren't. If that's your goal, like if that's the outcome you're looking for, you are not in in the most direct pursuit of that objective, if you keep leaning into this narrative. And so I, I try to show people, like, even if you're not concerned about being honest, if you are concerned about real concrete changes in our experiential reality, you still have to like let go of that narrative and start working in like the real world to accomplish real world outcomes. And it takes moral imagination to believe that the truth is more beneficial to the common good than your narrative. And we can't see past that. These last few episodes we've had, what we've been trying to tell you is regardless of the narrative is for us or for somebody else, we have to believe as Christians that the truth is more beneficial for everybody at the end of the day, even if we can't see it in the short term. Even if me saying, nah, the frequency with which my people shoot each other ain't cool. The truth of that has to be more beneficial to us then the narrative that that allows me to just put it on somebody else. That's what we're doing here. So hopefully y'all can feel it. Hopefully y'all understand where we're coming from. I thought this was a great episode. Uh, once again, Chris, always a pleasure to be doing this with you, my brother. Y'all know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you. Dear Lord.